Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. And if you're like me, you'll have less anxiety if you know what's coming, okay? So um, if you're gonna give me, if you'll give me uh, 40 minutes, so 8.30, right? give me to 8.30. And here's, I, I might be biting off more than I chew, but I think I could do this. You will understand the entire Bible in five words. You will understand why Jesus is so revolutionary inside that and where the cross fits into history. So in other words, the scriptures will get bigger, the cross will work better, and the place of Jesus in that story will get humongous, all right? And, 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 and I say 8.30 because if you're here tonight, you're over 40, it's like, oh, people who are, I'm 45, we don't do things outside after seven, okay? I get it, I get it. So you're like, when is this gonna be over? I get it. So we set everybody at ease. Like I travel, I travel the world. Sometimes people go, hey, you wanna go to a movie? I'm like, what time does it start? They're like 7.45. I'm like, what am I, an animal? Are you serious? Like, like I get it, I get it, I get it, right? So we're gonna, we're gonna, be, um, we're, we're gonna be very strong and we're gonna, be, we're gonna honor your time. So um, considering I'm in a room full of fully devoted followers of Jesus, I, I'm assuming that we all love the scriptures, right? I, I love the scripture, you love the scripture. This is gonna be a great night because you guys are so active. I love this, right? So, so if you wanna ruin the Bible, which I know nobody wanna do. Here's all you gotta to do to ruin the Bible. Speak of it statically. Talk about the Bible as if it's like a static record of God. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. That's what the Bible is. Now, Romans chapter five, verse eight says something really revolutionary. And because we learn it so early, we can, it can sort of sometimes become so common, it loses its power. It says something like this, depending on the version. But God demonstrated his own love, love toward us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this is one of the things that makes Christianity so revolutionary. One of the most basic things is Christianity is the one religion or one set of spiritual values in the world that says God acted first. Every other system of religion in the world in Jesus' day, you act first, and then maybe that God would respond on your behalf. You go to that God's temple, do that God's ritual, and that God's posture, and you pay that God's fee. And if you do that, that God might then, in fact, respond to you, not Christianity. The God revealed in Christ is a God that while we were hostile to God, God acted first and humbly consented in love, and then humbly waits for us to consent back. This was a revolutionary concept that to understand the full breadth of it, we have to understand the whole Bible. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna teach you the whole Bible in five words, and I'm gonna be, they're five one-syllable words, and I'm gonna need your help with a whole lot of whatever AFL team you cheer for gusto, all right? So we're gonna do this together, all right? Now, to understand how revolutionary this is, let me state this a bit complex, and then I'm gonna state it simple, and then I'm gonna state it real simple. The complex is this. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Now let me state it one level simple. What we have in the Bible is a beautiful narrative by which the more they understood about God, the closer he got and the nicer he got. And that's a good thing, because you don't want somebody getting closer and meaner, okay? 
So what you see in the scripture is this beautiful moving narrative where people, the more they understood about God, the more they realized God was closer than we ever thought before. And then the closer they realized he is, the nicer they realized he is. So let's deal with that first statement, that as you read the Bible, God is getting closer. Now to understand what I mean by this, let's go back to a guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father, one of the fathers of the faith, and he lived in a place called ancient Sumeria. This is before scriptures. This is before temples. This is before any of this. And so if you lived in Abraham's day and you wondered where God lived, where did God live? And the answer was, and this is what we're going to repeat for the rest of the night, the answer was God lived up. Okay, he lived in the sky. Now, we know from the Bible that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Was he a bad guy? No. If you live with the concept that God lives in the sky and you walk out during the middle of the day and you look up in the sky, what is obviously the most powerful thing in the sky? The sun. So the logic was, if God's in the sky and that's the most powerful thing in the sky, then that big ball of fire must be God. But all I want you to know for now is that in Abraham's day, God lived up. So for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Abraham's day, God lived, we're going to say with a whole lot of gusto, up, and we're going to do our thumb like that. That way we'll always remember it. So let's practice that, okay? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Oh, this is great. You guys are great, right? Let's try that again. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. One more time because we're going to get our rhythm here and we're going to do it all together. This is really good. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Yeah, he lived up in the sky. And once again, we know from the Bible that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Not a bad guy, but if you think God lives up in the sky, then the sun's obviously God. It's obviously the most powerful thing in the sky. Here's the problem with the sun. Every day, the sun sets. So here was the logic. The sun must be the God of the day. And then what would be the God of the night? The moon. And the logic was the sun was more powerful than the moon. Until by observation, because you can look straight at the moon, here's what they observed. The moon goes through a predictable 28-day cycle. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. And they realized that every 28 days, the moon renews itself, which led to this observation. What else in life renews itself every 28 days? Okay, every, every half the room should know this, women, okay? Like, I can see where the guy in the back's like, Bill, what's he talking about, man? So, like, okay, so, okay, so every 28 days, there's this thing that happens to, to women in the room. And you want it to happen, unless you really don't want it to happen. But if it doesn't happen, you run to the chemist shop sort of panicking, right? So that's, that's the idea, right? So here was the idea, is the moon is following the same cycle as the women. How powerful is this moon? This moon must be controlling fertility, and it must be controlling the women's moods. So if the full moon's out, you better get out of the cave. But when the new moon comes, it's going to be a good night tonight. This was the idea, right? So in Abraham's day, God lived up. Abraham's day, God lived up. Now, you're an ancient Sumerian farmer. What do you desperately need to come out of the sky so that you live? You need rains. So here was the idea. Who's controlling the rain? Obviously, the people living in the sky. 
and what must you do to appease the people in the sky? Because the idea was, is that if the people in the sky are ticked, they withhold the rain and you die. If they're happy, they give you rain and you live. If they're really ticked, they're going to send a lot of rain. That's a whole other story. But the question is, is what do we need to do to appease the gods of the sky? We'll get to that in a second. For right now, all I want us to know is that in Abraham's day, God lived. Uh, 430 years later, a guy named Moses comes along. And Moses is like, no, God doesn't live up. That's ridiculous. God lives in a tent in the middle of camp because that's less ridiculous. So what he did is he built God a tent and he said, God lives in there. Now, of course, his advisors were like, bro, listen, you're going to have to do something because if people ever actually walk in there, they're going to realize it's just furniture. So Moses is like, I know what we'll do. We'll tell people if they walk in there, they'll die, right? Which was a bit of an overstatement because it was a mobile tent. They had to set it up and tear it down all the time. Like, what if you were the guy who put the last tent stake in the Holy of Holies? Like, what'd you get? Like a 60-second alarm? Like, get out of there. Beep, beep, beep. I don't know. But here's the bottom line, is that that was a giant leap in the right direction. When you move your concept of God from up in the sky to a tent in the middle of camp, God is getting closer, more accessible, not less accessible. So, for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Moses' day, God lived in a tent, and we're going to point like that, all right? So let's practice. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. Then years later, a guy named David comes along. David's like, no! God doesn't live in a tent. It's ridiculous. It's 45 foot long by 15 foot wide by 15 foot high, and it's covered in animal hair. It's absurd. See, David was a king. And when David would go to other countries to visit their kings, their kings would show them their God's temples, which were unbelievable. And then those kings would come to see David, and they'd say, where's your God's temple? And David's like, he, it's in that tent over there. And David had this logic. He's like, listen, if the foreign kings think their God is stronger, then we're more susceptible to being attacked and we're not giving glory to God. So David moved God into a temple. Now, for the rest of the sermon, when I say in David's day, God lived in a temple, and we're going to point up like that. So let's practice. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. David's day, he lived in a temple. So God's getting closer more, accept more accessible, uh, in a more fixed place. Then, then a guy named Jesus comes along. And Jesus, they started saying some crazy stuff, like the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So in the same Bible, the Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Because in the same Bible, you have a guy that thinks God lives up, another guy that thinks he lives in a tent, another guy that thinks he lives in a temple, and then Jesus shows up and they said, uh-uh, wait a minute, God has now lived in flesh. For the rest of the sermon, when I say in Jesus' day, God lived in flesh, and we're going to tap our hand, okay? So let's practice. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. David's day, he lived in a temple. And Jesus' day, he lives in flesh. So 
from Abraham to Jesus, you have this dynamic, progressive, moving revelation. God is up. God is in a tent. God is in a temple. And then finally, they're like, wait a minute. Hang on. I think he's better than that. I think God is closer than we ever thought possible. Actually, God is walking around teaching us how to live. He's not up in the sky. He's not in an inaccessible tent. He's not in an inaccessible temple. He's actually walking around and moved into our neighborhood is what the scripture literally says. And he's teaching us how to live. Then in Paul and James and John, Peter, they start making radical claims like, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? Now, if they're right, that is a radical claim. What that means is, is that the same spirit that was up and tent and temple and flesh has now been gifted to us. So for the rest of the sermon, when I say, in Paul's day, God lived in us. And we're going to do it this way. Let's practice that. In Paul's day, God lived in us. Let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. David's day, he lived in a temple. In Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. And by Paul's day, he lives in us. God's getting closer. The Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. And what we find is within that is the more they understood about God, the closer he got. He's not in the sky. Now, it's very important. Did God ever change? No, God never changed. What changed is people's understanding of God, and we get the beautiful privilege to read the whole narrative in this amazing, awesome record of people's understanding of God that we now call the Bible or the scriptures. And in that library of books, you see this dynamic move from up to tent to temple to flesh to now in all of us. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is, is that the closer he got, the nicer he got. Let's go back to Abraham. In Abraham's day, God lived up. A bit more together and Lord Augusto. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Now, what do we need to come out of the sky? We need rain. Got to get rain. And to get rain, we got to please the gods. And so the question in Abraham's day was, what must I do to please the gods? And the answer was, I'm going to show it to you. It's sort of a word and then a movement. We're going to shrug our shoulders and go, I don't know. Right? All right, so... Let's try that together. In Abraham's day, what do you have to do to please God? Yeah, I don't know. All right, let's try that a bit more together, a bit more gusto. Ready? In Abraham's day, what do you have to do to please God? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And what do you do when you don't know? You make it up. And if you make it up with enough gusto, people start believing you. And it takes on. So, in Abraham's day, what do you have to do to please God? Yeah, I don't know. So, here's what they made up. They said, you can please God two ways. This is all in ancient Sumerian culture. If you want a great history book on this, you can read The Gifts of the Jews by the historian Thomas Cahill. And he tells this in a brilliant historian sort of manner. So if you're a nerd and like that kind of stuff, there you go, right? So here's what they said. They said, you can please God two ways. One is self-mutilation. Like the gods of the sky are impressed if you cut yourself. Now here's the problem with that. There's a drought. And you go, I must have offended the gods. What must I do to please God? We go, you got to cut yourself. 
Now, what's the problem with that? If I say, you could please God by cutting yourself, what's your question? Well, what must I cut? And how much of what must I cut? And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know. And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know. So here's what they did. Is they said, cut. In one sect of ancient Sumerian culture, they said, just cut till it rains. They lived in Iraq. What would so, because the problem is, is, is what if you do 10 cuts, but the magic number is 11, and they never knew when they went to bed, have I done enough to please the gods of the sky? Have I cut enough? Second thing that they said you could do to please God is sacrifice. Again, that's problematic. If I said, hey, there's a drought, you can please God by sacrifice. What's your question? What must I sacrifice? And more importantly, how much of what must I sacrifice? And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know, I don't know. So here's what they did. They started offering more and more and more and more and more sacrifice until one day they realized, wait a minute, if we all simply give our most valuable thing, there's no way the gods of the sky can deny that. So here's what they did. They made a rule that everybody has to kill their firstborn child because if you kill your firstborn child, there's no way the gods of the sky can deny this. Now, it's in that historical context that God shows up to Abraham. And he says, hello, Abraham. My name is El Shaddai. I love the grace of God with Abraham. In other words, Abraham, you got a bunch of gods. You got to be wondering who's in charge. That's me. I am God Almighty. Abraham's response was, well, at least you're speaking. What do you want from me, El Shaddai. And El Shaddai meets Abraham right where Abraham thinks God is. If you don't hear me say nothing else, hear me say this. God seems to be humble enough to always meet people where they think he is and then move them forward. He doesn't judge their narrative. He doesn't banish their narrative. He doesn't criticize their narrative. He engages them right where they think he is and then he engages the narrative in order to make a better story. So in Abraham's world, what did you have to do? You had to mutilate and you had to sacrifice. It's exactly where God meets Abraham. Okay, you think you have to mutilate? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to circumcise yourself with a rock. That's mutilation, which is an odd command. Abraham's 90. God's first word to a 90-year-old man is to circumcise yourself with a rock. That's weird, right? Like... Pick up a rock, swing hard, don't miss. That's weird, right? Have you ever seen a 90-year-old man? His hand shakes. His eyesight's not real good. You imagine that? Hey, Sarah, say a prayer for me, sweetheart. This is going to be interesting. I'm going to try to get this in one go. That's strange. Now, for us, circumcision is weird, barbaric. If you're being spiritual about it, we might even call it the law. But I want you to think about it for a second. In the context of Abraham's world, is circumcision law? No, it's grace. It's one of the most gracious things ever. Why? Abraham grew up in a world where you did not know how many cuts to do. God shows up and says, we'll fix that. Circumcise. Why is that grace? Because how many times could you ever possibly circumcise yourself? Yes. Yes, you went to seventh grade anatomy. That's exactly right. Once, like seriously, if you could circumcise yourself twice, 
You the man. I don't know. Right? So Abraham moved the world from infinite cuts to one off. Boy, that's nice. Second thing, God says, Abraham, I want you to kill your kid. What a strange story. Why would God say that? Because God seems to be humble enough to meet people where they think he is. And then change the narrative. In Abraham's world, what did you have to do to please God? Kill your kid. It's interesting. If you read the passage, God says, kill your kid. Abraham doesn't ask why. He doesn't ask how. Like if I said, hey, you can get right with God by killing your kid. What would your response be? What? That's weird. No way. Is that, what did I, like, right? Like, right? what did I smoke, right? Seriously. No, no. Abraham goes, kill my kid. Totally reasonable. He doesn't ask why. He doesn't ask how. It just simply says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Why would you go to a high place? Because God lives up. And he's going to sacrifice his kid because that's what you have to do. The great God historian Karen Armstrong says that this is the first time in the history of the world from any civilization, from any era, from any place of the world where they wrote their stuff down, where a God stopped a sacrifice and provided a different one. And here was God's idea. Hey, Abraham, hey, I've met you right where you think I am. Let's do something better. Instead of killing children, let's kill animals. Well, when you're the first person to get the idea that you could kill animals instead of children, is that a good move or a bad move? That's a really good flipping move. Is that the word of God? You better believe that's the word of God. Is that inspired? Absolutely. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God is the risen Christ, but that's a giant leap in the right direction. So Abraham comes down off the mountain and Isaac's in tow. What are the neighbors thinking? No, no. Hey, Abraham, you're going to bring a drought on the whole land. We know it's not nice, but we had to do it. Our grandbabies had to do it. Our great-grandbabies had to do it. Our great, hey, it's not nice, but you get back up there and kill your kid, bro. Are you going to bring a drought on everybody? And Abraham's like, no, I've got a new revelation of God. And God's nicer than you thought. We don't have to kill our children anymore. We can kill animals. The Talmud tells another side of the story, which is beautiful. It says that Abraham was so moved by the compassion of El Shaddai that he went into his room of idols. Abraham had this room of gods. And he went into this room of gods and he took an ax and he destroyed every god in his room of gods except one. And he left the one standing and he put the ax in its hand. So the next day when his father came into worship and he said, Abraham, what happened in here? And Abraham said, isn't it obvious there must have been a fight amongst the gods and that one must have won. <laughs> so Abraham's God's name is El Shaddai. Let's review for a second with some gusto. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. How much did he have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did he have to mutilate? I don't know. And what was God's name? El Shaddai. Everybody together? El Shaddai. Abraham has a son named Isaac. What's their God's name? El Shaddai. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Who's his God? El Shaddai. Jacob has 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 12 children have 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 144 kids have 12 kids. Who's their God? El Shaddai. The math is getting too hard. Who is their God? El Shaddai. 20 generations later, there is no God but El Shaddai. No other name other than El Shaddai. It's in our verses. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our websites. It's in our fundamental truths. There is no God but El Shaddai. Then Moses comes along. 
And Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. And in Pharaoh's house, the son was God. His name was Ra. So Moses was taught his whole life that this big ball of fire was God. And if you take it off, it'll consume you. So Moses grew up thinking God was a fire. And then lo and behold, when God meets Moses, how does he meet him? A fire. In other words, if you need me to be a fire, I'll be a fire. I'll meet you right where you think I am, and then I'm going to move it forward. Because if you're paying attention, I'm not a consuming fire. I'm not even harming the most flammable thing in the desert. As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. That you will live your whole life terrified of the consuming fire, the sun god, Ra. Or by faith, you'll embrace the loving, refining fire of a loving Yahweh, who although he will perfect you, he'll never harm you, for the bush was not consumed. That is articulate. So Moses has this encounter with a burning bush. He's confused because it's not burning up. And remember what the burning bush says? Hello, Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? El Shaddai. Moses says, hello, El Shaddai. I should probably take my shoes off. The burning bush says, no. I introduced myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, they didn't know me. Remember, Moses argues with a talking bush, and he says, "No, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai." Everybody knows that. It's in our verses. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our websites. It's in our fundamental truths. The burning bush says, "I know. I introduced myself to them as El Shaddai, but by my name, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, they didn't know me." Now, what's weird about this is that if you know anything about Hebrew, yud heh vav heh, you can't say it. The letters don't go together. It'd be like me saying, my name is Lemon. What? What? yud heh vav heh. Come again? yud heh vav heh. It's not even a word. I know. I know. My name is yud heh vav heh. What's that even mean? It means I am what I am. Well, that clears it up. So Moses goes back to the Israelites, and here's his message, ready? I know you've been taught for 20 generations that God's name is El Shaddai, but I have a new revelation from God, and his name isn't just El Shaddai, it's also yod vav How well do you think that went? <laughs> Not well, and you wouldn't have believed it either. Imagine that. Moses, you're a premeditated murdering fugitive. You're coming back with not a lot of credibility, claiming to have a new revelation of God, and God has changed his name to what? Yode Vave. What? Yode Vave. Moses, that's not even a word. I know. I know, but he told me his name is Yode Vave. Where'd he tell you this, Moses? The wilderness. Anybody else there to witness this? No. How'd he tell you? Talking bush. Right? In Jewish history, it tells the story that they didn't buy it either until he parted the Red Sea and brought water out of the rock. And once he brought water out of the rock, it was sort of like maybe he was on to something. And this God, this God, it's interesting. Yud, hey, vav, hey. The rabbi said, listen to it. Yud, hey, vav, hey. It has no meaning. Yud, hey, vav, hey. But they said, if you listen closely, it sounds like the sound of breathing. Yud, hey, vav, hey. Hey, and they said the name of God is actually in our breath. 
and that the name of God holds our life together. Isn't it interesting when a baby is born, the first thing it has to do is it has to breathe. It has to say the name of God. When you die, you say, you take your last breath. So as long as we are living, we are saying God's name over and over and over again in the air that we breathe. Isn't it interesting that the time and the space it would take for an atheist to say, I do not believe in God. God is actually gracious enough to let him use his name to sustain his whole life because that is how nice God is. God is in the yud Hey, vav This, this, this yud Hey, vav He, he, he inspires Moses to write a book called Leviticus. Again, to us, weird, barbaric, actually borderline insane, right? Then why do God historians call Leviticus the nicest book about God ever written up until the time it was written? Why? Up until Leviticus, how much did you have to sacrifice? Uh-huh. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Leviticus says one sacrifice per family per year and you can know you're all good. <laughs> and when it comes to mutilation, we're going to circumcise, but on the eighth day, that way no one remembers it. And then I forbid anyone from ever putting a marking on their body ever again. I promise you when he wrote that, he never thought we'd argue about whether it's a sin to have a tattoo. This was, these were people wondering, am I going to have to cut myself? <laughs> so in Moses' day, how much did you have to sacrifice? Once. How much did you have to mutilate? Once God's getting nicer. Let's review. <laughs> In Abraham's day, God lived. Oh, how much have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. How much have to sacrifice? Once. How much have to mutilate? Once. David's day, God lived in a temple. How much have to sacrifice? Once. How much have to mutilate? Once. Then some people called the prophets came along. And they started picking up this wasn't the full and final revelation of God. Particularly a guy named Micah. Micah's like, I think we're missing something here. What kind of God is grumpy and then gets nice because you killed a bird? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Just do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God, it'll be okay. But Micah was too far ahead of himself, so they killed him. That's what happens. Then a guy named Jesus comes along. And in Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. In Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. And Jesus is the full and final revelation of what God's actually like, what he was always like. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. Jesus just simply showed us what God was always like. In 1 John chapter 1, for we know that all these things have been true since the beginning, but now we have seen it with our own two eyes, the full and final revelation of what God actually is. In other words, God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. And the full and final revelation of God in Christ started making God nicer than anyone ever thought possible. Remember, in Moses' day, how much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. Jesus comes along, and he starts calling people forgiven without a sacrifice. Which leads to this question. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Okay. Okay, so if I ask if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is yes. All right. So is Jesus allowed to do that? <clears throat> like there's this one time there's this guy named Zacchaeus and he's up a tree presumably because he's short and Jesus has a whole crowd following him he's not that interested he's like I want to talk to you he says Zacchaeus come on down I'm eating with you today and it says Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus. He says, hey, here and now I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation has come to your house. 
Is Jesus allowed to do that? No sacrifice, no temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10, no sinner's prayer. What happened there? See, what was the only way for Zacchaeus to be saved in the first century? Temple, ritual, and sacrifice. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So when your job refused you entrance to the only place salvation was available, what did you do? Jesus circumvented the entire system of oppressive power, and he sees the man's heart change, and he says, that's enough for me. God is nicer than you thought. <laughs> There's this one time. It's just an awkward situation. Jesus, it says Jesus went to a prostitute's house. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to go to a prostitute's house? Yes. And what's going on at a prostitute's house in the first century? Business. Jesus is between customers. Which leads to this question, would there be a worse place to ever run into Jesus? Imagine like Jesus in the front room and like the guy comes out the back room and he's like, Jesus. Hey, man. Ooh, I was just here to use the toilet. <clears throat> and it says that the prostitute was so moved by his compassion that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus say? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. <laughs> Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved by wiping his feet with your hair? And aren't you glad that's not the rule? Look, my friend there, my goodness, sir on the end, like all my bald brothers in the room. Like with all respect to you, sir, for you to wipe his feet with your hair would be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. <clears throat> See, we tend to say things like, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Is that true? Yeah, yes. Yes. Yes, that's true. I'm not tricking you. Yes. Yes, that's true. But to say Jesus is the only way and to say my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus is two different things. What you find in, 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 the, in the God revealed in Christ is that he was meeting people wherever they were. Who, who, what's the only way for the prostitute to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitute prostitutes. So what does Jesus do? He circumvents the entire oppressive system and he sees their heart change and says, that'll do. That'll do. No sacrifice, no temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10, no, no, no sinner's prayer. He saw their heart change. Like, what? Like, there's this one time. Jesus is having a really bad day and he ends up on a cross. It's a pretty bad day. And the guy next to him is having an equally bad day and he can't breathe, and all he can muster is three words. Please remember me. Please. Would you please remember me? And what, what does Jesus say? Well, Bo, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2021. <laughs> what? 
Imagine if Jesus was some semi-ghettoized evangelical. You better say the sinner's prayer. What's that? It's a prayer they make up in 1830 to help people connect with me, and I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's Romans? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but you better hurry up. No. No sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10. This, Jesus sees this guy's heart change. What's the only way for that man to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who can't go to the temple? That guy. There's this one time. This is the strangest story in Jesus' whole life, I reckon. It says that he's preaching in a full house, and there was a paralyzed man that couldn't get in. So his friends took him to the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and then lowered him in. That is odd. Listen, I don't care how good of a communicator you are. If someone repels from the roof, it is over. <laughs> right? So this guy comes down like this. And remember what Jesus says? It says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. <laughs> is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved because someone else is believing for you? I don't know. You see, well, what was the only way for that man to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. Jesus circumvents the whole thing. Uh, you know, a later writer named Paul said that, this, that the faith of a believing wife can save her unbelieving husband. Is Paul allowed to say that? Yes. <clears throat> you say, Shane, how far do you take that? I don't know. I actually don't. But I do know this. If you're here tonight and you're a mom and you're believing for your unbelieving children, you keep doing that. Somehow Jesus sees that stuff. Yeah. The God revealed in Christ started making, he started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice or a temple visit or a sinner's prayer or an altar call. Or before, I know it surprises some people that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written, but they did. <laughs> because the God revealed in Christ was nicer than people think. Let's review. Everybody ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. Oh, how much have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day lives in a tent. How much have to sacrifice? Once. Mutilate. Once. David's day lived in a temple. Sacrifice. Once. Mutilate. Once, Jesus' day God lives in flesh. How much have to sacrifice? None. How much have to mutilate? None. God's getting nicer. And some people called that good news. But then there's a guy named Paul. And Paul's day God lived in us. And then the New Testament writers started saying radical things. They said that Jesus was not simply crucified on Calvary, but rather he was crucified before the foundation of the world. Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 1.4, he was chosen before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20, he was crucified before the foundation of the world, but in these last days was made manifest so you could see it. Revelation 13.8, blessed are those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, your salvation was given to you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 4.3, his sacrificial work was completed before the foundation of the world. 1 John, the whole book of 1 John, for we know that all these things have been true since the beginning, but now we have seen him 
with our own two eyes. And my personal favorite, Hebrews chapter 9. Didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin, but God simply let you do it because your conscience needed to be appeased. For don't you know that Jesus died before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages? I love that. Does that sound like a Jewish theological principle? No, it sounds like a rock festival. Where'd you go last weekend? I went to the culmination of the ages. It was awesome. In other words, to the New Testament writers, once they profoundly saw what Christ was up to, they had this moment. Ready? That's what God was always like. That Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He simply showed us what God was always like. The gospel is not that God was grumpy until he hurt his own kid and now he's happy. That is ridiculous. The gospel is that God was in Christ showing the whole world what he had done before the foundation of the world. And by the way, that's the only thing that makes Christianity make any sense. If that's not true and someone says, hey, in one paragraph, tell me the story. It'd be something like this, ready? Uh... God created the world, and even though he was God, he lacked the foresight to foresee human rebellion. So when humans rebelled, it sort of surprised him, and he had to rack his God brain as to what to do. And even though he was God, his best idea was to torture and kill his only son by sending him to earth on a suicide mission. And even though the son obeyed the suicide mission, it was still horribly unsuccessful because billions of people are still going to burn in hell forever with no hope of ever getting out, and God never gets what he wants anyway. Join us. <laughs> Boy, does that make sense. What? No. What if the story is better than that? What if it's this, that God created the world, and because he was God, he was able to foresee human rebellion, and he loved creation enough not to destroy it, but to fix the whole broken thing before it started, and the whole rest of the biblical narrative is God trying to show his beloved creation how much he loved them since before the foundation of the world. We would not believe it without seeing it, and then he loved us enough to be in Christ and show it, even if it meant suffering and dying for the whole world. And the gospel is not about Jesus coming to fix your badness. It's Jesus coming to make a way for us to embrace how God originally made us to be. One last review. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. Oh, how much have to sacrifice? I don't know. Mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day lives in a tent. Sacrifice? Once. Mutilate? Once. David's day? Temple. Sacrifice? Once. Mutilate? Once, Jesus' day, flesh. How much have to sacrifice? None. Mutilate? None. In, G in Paul's day, God lives in us. And when did it all happen? Before the foundation of the world. So, my brothers and sisters, if you're paying attention, you just learned the whole Bible with five words. Up, tent, temple, flesh, and us. So wait, may we embrace, consent, and participate to the truth that is found in Christ Jesus and embrace what has always been true since before the foundation of the world and let our life live in such a way to show the whole world around us what it's like to be profoundly connected to what happened at the culmination of the ages. May Jesus not be somebody to believe in, but rather a fundamental way of seeing the world. And may our compassion exhibit to the whole world what it's like to be connected to that moment at the foundation of the world, at the culmination of the ages. Until I see you next time, grace and peace, everybody. God bless.
Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.